Hi, my name is Cameron Kozan, and this is the Logger Podcast, where we interview hardware leaders on their personal journeys and their career-defining hardware projects. But before we jump in, if you are a hardware team or if writing firmware is part of your job, then head over to LoggerData, L-A-G-E-R-D-A-T-A.com, and we will both literally and figuratively change your life for the better. That's L-A-G-E-R-D-A-T-A.com. On today's episode, we talk with Michael Kaur, founder and CEO of Duro Labs. Duro is a cloud PLM for distributed hardware teams, and Michael is someone who lives at the intersection of software and hardware, something I love a lot, and it made for a great conversation. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Logger Podcast. Very excited today to be talking to Michael Kaur, who's the founder and CEO of Duro Labs. Michael has had a look at hardware from a whole bunch of angles. As a researcher, as a VP at a startup, an acquired startup, a freelancer living in China, and now a founder. I don't think that many people get that many different looks. So I'm excited to talk with Michael today. Michael, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. Really glad to be here. So I, I went back in your career, and I'm just going to ask you some early days questions. The first thing I was curious about is you majored in computer engineering and switched to electrical engineering. And it surprised me because I feel like around the time that you were graduating, there would be a lot of momentum to like stick with computer engineering, the internet, all of that stuff. What made you make that switch for your master's? Good question. I mean, I actually started out as a physics major oh. and then switched to computer science and then computer engineering and ultimately electrical engineering. And really the drive was just interesting courses. That's kind of what guided me to switch. What I found the most interesting and the most challenging, I think I was bound to be an electrical engineer. I've always tinkered with things. I love the tangible. I love building things. Computer science definitely allowed me to build things, build software. And I love the problem solving aspect that it provided, allowed me to kind of compartmentalize problems and break them down into tangible elements. But what was missing was the tangible aspect physically building something and electrical engineering allowed me to really get involved with at the time it's called embedded systems, you know, building circuit boards and mechatronics and little robots and what have you. And that's when I got really excited and that's what formed the rest of my career. That's cool. There are two things on that. One, when I graduated from graduate school, I was like the salesperson at a mechatronics company. And I wrote the word mechatronics into Microsoft Word at the time. It autocorrected and said, do you mean macaronis? And I was like, <laughs> well, we're probably on the forefront of something here. If the next best bet is, is pasta. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the thing you mentioned about the, the sort of like intangible, almost like temporal nature of software is like an ongoing sadness of mine, you know, you there will never be like a museum of software because it just it's like vanishes overnight. Like a Sony mini disc player is like a moment in time like frozen forever, and sure. software never gives you that, which is a bummer. Yeah, but I, I think I mean what what definitely attracted me to software was not just building things, but there was there could be beauty in it, right? Like oh yeah, you could recognize good code and it might take a trained eye to be able to recognize that, but hopefully there is some museum or some way of conveying that or showing that in some type of more permanent way so people can enjoy it the beauty of, of good and well-written code. I would love that to be the case, but let's not go too far down the beauty of, of software. We're here to talk hardware. You know, let's talk about the hard stuff. Yeah. So 
You spent your first seven years after your graduate program at SRI, and your hardware software stuff is really closely aligned, which makes sense for what you do now with Duro. But SRI to me has always been awesome. I didn't realize until I was looking into it more that they also were consulted for the creation of Disneyland. I knew that they had created the mouse and stuff like that, but no, it was pretty S- big time. SRI International, I mean, they there was a tagline. It was something like the the secret of Silicon Valley or something like that. But there's so many now popular inventions that actually came from SRI. You know, very little credits given to Doug Engelbart, the actual founder oh, yeah. of the mouse. SRI was basically, it is a research institute. It grew out of Stanford and I believe in the 40s. And they did really, really well at R&D. They did not do well at productization. It just wasn't in our DNA. And so there are a lot of amazing inventions that came out of SRI. SRI was actually also one of the first nodes on the internet, but they never did well at commercializing or productizing those elements. Anyone who has studied the history of SRI International, I think will be amazed at how many things came out of that institution. And it was actually, it was perfect for me I loved going through a master's program. I love the research aspect. I was fortunate to have good advisors and being in a good program. And I love being able to be creative and, and investigate and, and research new things. But I, I knew I didn't want to go down the full route of academia. It was tempting to stick around for a PhD and potentially do a professorship. In, and you know, there's, there's inviting things to that. But again, going back to that tangible, like needing to build things, I, I felt... I needed to go into the commercial world. And SRI was the perfect mix of both because it had that research aspect of it. Certainly in the lab that I was in, which is communications and radios and and, and telecom equipment focused. So all our projects, uh, research elements were six to 12 months long. And so they were finite projects. So it allowed you to really, really dive deep into something for a shorter period of time and then move on to something else. But you know, with a tie-in to the industry, we were often hired by outside firms or companies or, or government institutions like DARPA to solve really hard problems. And so there it wasn't purely academic research. Like there was a goal of moving it into production or doing something with it, but we would hand it off at the end. And so it was it was like a kid in a candy shop. Like it was an amazing opportunity. I had um, some fantastic bosses and mentors, and I, I really learned how to be an engineer at SRI and gave me a really strong foundation. But ultimately, you know, I think what was missing was that element of producing. I knew there was a different side of engineering. Like when, when you're building one unit or, or just prototypes of a, of a product, whether it's a circuit board or a robot or, or some type of device, you make very, very different decisions as if you're going to build a million of it. And I was missing that element in my career. I wanted to learn about that. And so an opportunity opened up for me to join a, a friend's startup in clean tech and lead the hardware engineering team. And that's what really opened up my eyes to production and mass production and, and the different trade-offs and, and associated challenges. So you were there for seven years. So you weren't there like quickly. So you you did anywhere from seven to 14 of these like six to 12 month projects. Did you basically become increasingly unfulfilled with like a cool, I got like a taste, but not the whole meal every single time? Because the seven years is like a pretty long time to be there. So you must have loved it for, you know, a certain period of time. I did. Yeah. yeah. The short of it answer is yes. 
At SRI, depending on what path you take, there's lots of opportunities for you. You're always encouraged to be working on at least two to three projects simultaneously. Because one project can end while another one starts. And so you just have some continuity of working hours, you know, based on your own personal interests and and responsibilities on whether it's just one project or, or three projects, but somewhere in that range. So, yeah, so I felt like there was always some part of my day was on these very short term projects. Towards the end of my career there, I did build out a program. I had gravitated to telecom protocols. And at the time, you know, like SS7, ISDN and other types of, of and GSM was starting to become more prominent in the industry. And so I found telecom protocols and equipment fascinating. And so I always had one big project going on that I was managing and built a team and even opened up a remote office to be closer to some of our customers. And that was really fulfilling. Like I, that was my real first taste at building and managing teams and programs. And it was something I built along with my colleagues, obviously got a lot of help, but it was something that I owned and can be proud of. And it started to to continue to grow. And, and that's, was, it's, that's why it was bittersweet. Like, do I want to stick around for another seven years and really see this program blossom into a, a large, potentially even its own department? Or was it time to kind of move on to something else? And ultimately, obviously, I decided to move on to something else. But that program is still alive and well today. You know, I still oh, keep awesome. in contact with some of those people. And, I, and there's this there's a office opened up in Texas that is dedicated to this work. I'm not privy to all the, the details that are still going on in that program. But I do know that it, it did live on and, and had some success. Do you feel like when you're describing it initially versus now, it seemed like this kind of open-ended research place that now I feel like maybe it almost sounds more like a advanced consultancy. Did you feel like when you opened up your team, like you were basically a partner at a consulting firm? Yeah, that's one way of looking at it. I mean, we were technically, you know, SRI is, is a contractor. And so SRI is broken up into different divisions and within each division is different labs that have different technical focuses. It, it's not just engineering, but there's lots of different disciplines. And so each department had its own way of getting work, depending on the discipline or who the clients were. My particular department was, was heavily focused, while well, we did do some commercial work, the majority of which was, was DOD, government work, government research, R&D, very DARPA type of projects. And, and that, that too was amazing. I mean, DARPA has this saying, like everything that they work on has to be 20 years in the future. They call it That's DARPA awesome. hard, right? And so that exposed me some, to some amazing technologies and concepts that were far, far ahead of what was going on in the commercial industry at the time. And so, yeah, so to answer your question, I mean, yes, ultimately we were considered contractors, government contractors at the end of the day, but depending on who your client was and whether it was more research focused or project focused or whatever you know, the case may be. It's like one of these like Xerox Park kind of magical places. The idea of them selling the mouse for 40 grand to Apple or the Engelbart thing, old Dougie, mother of all demos is such a cool thing to have said about you where he's like, hey, yeah, here's the future for a really long have time. You, have so. you seen the video of him? I, I yeah. have. Yeah, it's awesome. In hindsight, of course, it seems like obvious, but at the time that was major, major breakthrough. Yeah. Yeah. So that's cool. I just wanted a little extra glimpse into that because I, I didn't know much. I haven't read any books about it or anything, just like the little bit. Yeah. And, and just to kind of add to that, you know, certainly if there's any younger engineers that are listening and, and evaluating their options, I, I highly recommend places like SRI or engineering design firms where you have options to work on multiple things. It's a trade-off, right? You know, when you work on a, a, a single product type company, 
there's amazing opportunities there. You can focus on a product and it gets released. And, you know, there's always things you wish you fixed or did better. And you get a chance to do that in the second release or third release and continue polishing that rock. But vice versa, you're continuously polishing the same rock. And so that's why engineering design firms or other types of, of companies that, that have a more breadth of projects is an amazing place to be if you're still trying to figure out what it is you want to focus on or what really interests you because of that ephemeral projects are usually short term and you get to work on them and move on to the next project, whether it's success or not. I mean, like a huge agreement with you. Especially because I think people do think of that variety as a way to get exposed to things that might interest them. You learn a bunch, you make mistakes, and you don't have to live with those mistakes forever. You get that clean slate immediately. From there, you're just a, you just have such a more versatile tool set for when you do find that one rock that you're going to care for deeply. Yeah, I agree with that. I've managed quite a few younger engineers at various companies. And that's something I've always tried to distill in, in the people that I've worked with engineering is not a job you do alone. You always work with other people with different skills or different parts. Software, you have front end, you have back end, you have DevOps, you have testing. Hardware, you have electrical, mechanical, you have operations, you have manufacturing, you have testing. And so while no one's expected to be an expert in each of those disciplines, having some exposure, some experience to how other people do their jobs related to the work you do makes you better at what you do focus on. You can understand what they're going to have to do once you hand off your work. And hopefully your goal is to make it easier for them. And so it's not just throwing it over the cubicle wall and saying, here you go, good luck. If you can plan ahead, the whole system is going to be better and more efficient to begin with. And so the best way to understand what a QA person is going to do is to be a QA person for a little bit yeah, and QA totally. product. And while it may not be your intended focus, at least you'll have some empirical experience with that or manufacturing. I, I can't tell you how much my eyes opened the first time I actually went on a factory floor. Like, yes, I understood how a circuit board was made or, you know, a, a mechanical part was machined or injection molded. Of course, I had done some studies of it and until I actually saw it and talked to the line workers, I truly didn't understand it. And that totally was a pivotal point in my career. And I just completely changed how I looked at designing circuit boards. There's a philosophy called DFX, design for blank, design for manufacturability, design for testing, design for assembly. And the smallest tweaks that might seem inconsequential to you when you're on the engineering side, like rotating the way a part is laid out or changing the angle slightly, can have huge, huge uh, impacts on how the product is assembled or tested, not just in time, but even cost or equipment required. And having an understanding of that totally makes you a better engineer. Yeah, and a better teammate. Like you were describing it really well. The cool thing about the kind of work we do is that you can't really do it on your own. Like you said, you need that team. The more you bleed over into other areas with just a little bit of understanding, you're sort of showing that specific group that you are considerate of them, that you care about them and that you're willing to be a good teammate to them. Yeah. Yeah. Like a little bit of empathy goes a long way. Okay. We're, we're moving on from SRI. Those are conversations I don't get to have what we just had. So I'm very happy that we were able to do that. 
We're moving on to your startup. Well, did your friends like come poach you out of SRI or were you really compelled by what they were doing? How'd that go? Yeah. Another nice thing about SRI is, you know, once you went home, you went home. Like your work mm-hmm. is left to work. <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of long for those days when you have a startup, there is no beginning or end. Everything just kind of moves into itself. You look for weekends because it means you get fewer emails to interrupt you. Oh my God, yes. So I, I just had some spare time. And a buddy of mine was, you know, talking about this company he was starting and he said that they were having a little bit of trouble with some circuit. And I was like, oh, I got some extra time. Like, I'm happy to come in and and just take a look. So I helped them debug some trouble they were having with an electrical circuit and helped them put together another little prototype to a proof of concept for like a photo sensor. And I guess they liked what I did. And so they approached me and said, hey, we're building a team. We've been using some consultants, but now we've raised some money and now we need to actually build an in-house engineering team. Do you want to lead that? And the timing was right. I, I was getting an itch at SRI about moving on. And I think it was just the right opportunity. And did you get that sort of like productization and like scale that you were missing? Were you able to get far enough with it's It's Adura Technologies, Adura, is that how you yeah. say it? Yeah, cool. Yeah, um, absolutely. And in fact, I credit that to what I'm doing today. The short of it is they basically said, great, here's everything. And they just dumped (laughs) everything on my lap. And they're like, by the way, you know, we're in, we've been manufacturing in China, get on the next plane and and go fix it. Oh, wow. And I had never been to China and, and nor had I been on a factory floor up until that point. And I remember getting on a plane and being given some piece of paper that said, hey, show this to this counter at the airport and a bus will take you where you need to go. Obviously speaking, no Mandarin and no idea where I was going. And the next thing I know, I'm on a bus and I'm being driven in the middle of the night up into the Shenzhen from Hong Kong with nobody else that spoke English. They put like a little sticker on your shoulder when you go to the bus terminal. Then so you just trust that someone like the bus driver sees your sticker. <laughs> you know, it's just the process and I'm just going with it and going across the border. And I remember they had given me some electrical test equipment in our office in San Francisco and said, hey, you need to bring this to the factory. They need this to help debug some issues. I was like, great. And I'm carrying some really expensive test equipment. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, am I supposed to declare this? And I see, you know, the vans coming up to the border between Hong Kong and, and Shenzhen, the mainland. And there's these clear signs that says nothing to declare or something to declare. I'm one of 12 on the bus and, and nobody else seems to speak English. And I'm like, I'm terrified. I'm like, am I going to get arrested here? Am I going to get deported? Like, I don't know what's going to happen. And I kind of, in like a mouse voice, I'm like, I think I have to declare something, but I didn't want to divert the bus. I was a little too too shy. And they went through the nothing to declare. And I just, you know, crossed my fingers and held my breath. They looked at my passport. You know, they opened up the back of the bus to like look at the luggage. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to get busted here. And with some ex-finding and be in some Chinese jail. And they just closed the bus and said, good luck. So then another like hour and a half in the middle of the night into no man's land. And this was pre-iPhone. I had no way of using like GPS to even know where I was if I was going to the right place. The next thing I know, we're pulling up to some hotel and the driver points at me and like says, get out. (laughs) So basically I went from zero to 60, you know, immediately. And, And then in the morning, same thing. I was told just to wait here at the hotel lobby and someone would pick me up and and 
that was that's kind of the process. Anyone who's been to factories in, in Shenzhen, that's kind of it. You stay at more Western style hotels, but sometimes they're a half hour or so from the factory and the factory will send a, a driver to pick you up. But you're every, it's, it's funny because you're out there in the lobby and next to you is 12 other people who look just like you. And pulling up to the lobby is 12 other vans that look just like each other. And you have no idea which one you're supposed to get into and just hope for the best. 15 some years later, that's still what happens. And I feel like every time I go to China, it's it's another adventure. That's cool. You were there for like three years and it was acquired, right? Is that right? Or I want to say we were acquired maybe after four. Okay, cool. Yeah, that time frame. The So that you get acquired and you go to this place called Acuity and you were only there for seven months, which is a peculiar number of months. Usually when somebody gets acquired, they're there for zero days or 12 months in one day. Yeah. And so why why seven months and what made you jump to freelance afterwards? Yeah, I mean, I, I was able to negotiate a different package. I stuck around long enough to make sure that our technology was transferred properly. You know, my team was settled and everyone had a position in, in the new company. But it, I think culturally just wasn't for me. And it's, it's no criticism of Acuity. It's an amazing brand and amazing company and clearly one that's very successful. But it just, it wasn't for me. I like the small, nimble teams. I like to be able to move fast. I like having sovereignty into making my own decisions. And, and yeah. you know, it's a normal. I don't think this, this, the experience with anything new that other people haven't gone through working at a startup and then being acquired by a much more established company with processes. It's the same. That's the, that's repeated all the time. Yeah. But one nuance though, that I think is worth focusing in on for folks is that people often think that you cannot negotiate an individual deal in that scenario. And I do think no matter where you are in the hierarchy, that is available to you. You may try to negotiate an individualized deal and then realize that you're not seen as valuable as you might've hoped, but like you, you should always maybe go for something like that because there's a chance that you're undervaluing yourself. And I've seen that happen over and over again. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, I was fortunate. I was in a position, I had some leverage and you know, there's some nuances to the deal. There was a period where I was no longer an employee, but I was actually a contractor. And so okay. what I was doing in that contractor period was actually kind of reverse onshoring. Acuity had a manufacturing resource already here in LA in Chatsworth that they wanted to consolidate our product line with. And so I promised to help with that. And so what I actually was doing was bringing the product line back from Shenzhen to LA. And to be honest, that's kind of why I'm in LA now. The project was long enough and required enough hands-on that being in San Francisco would have been difficult. And so I moved to LA for a few months, just rented an apartment to oversee this project. And to be honest, I kind of fell in love with LA. I was like, this place is pretty cool. It's a great city. And that's because of that experience was certainly a, a main motivation and factor of why I live here now permanently. It seems like you spent time living in China as a consultant there, helping people out with manufacturing. I didn't know about the Chatsworth project. Do you, but I was going to ask you about like pandemic, political situations, things like that. Do you foresee more manufacturing like of this for like startups and stuff like that coming back to the U.S.? And is it practical? Yeah, that's, that's great. Great question. The pandemic is definitely accelerating it. I mean, here's. Here's something that I think the U.S. needs to do better at. One of the first things I did when I moved to L.A. was I got involved with a a program called 
make it in LA through Mayor Garcetti's efforts. And, and that was exactly the goal was Los Angeles is the largest manufacturing city in the United States. We have access to some amazing manufacturing capabilities, you know, aerospace to small electromechanical to textiles to food. All types of manufacturing are all here in the Los Angeles County and, and adjacent counties, and everything's accessible. Yet the branding efforts, nobody really knows that. And so everyone thinks that if you're going to manufacture products, you have to go to China. And that's not exactly true. It's not a blanket statement that in order to be successful, you have to go to China or some other offshore. There's lots of reasons to have your product manufactured nearshore. How labor intensive is it to assemble and test? And your own personal experience. And so what I often encourage customers when I was consulting startups is one of the first questions I asked them when they, when they asked me this, like, hey, can you help me get into China? Absolutely something I was able to do. But I always push back and ask them, have you ever manufactured hardware before? Yeah. Because if the answer was no, I strongly encourage them not to go straight to China because any problems will be amplified many orders of magnitude with the time difference and the language barriers. And even if your product would be more expensive to build, like on a unit level, to build locally, the overhead of travel and problem solving is so much lower that it actually could dwarf the potential unit costs of moving huh. to China. And so, you know, case in point, like if you're in the Bay Area or, or, or in L.A. area and you're manufacturing somewhere that you could drive to, even going from the Bay Area to L.A. is normally five hours. That's still faster and cheaper than getting on a plane the last minute because you got some emergency call, the production lines down in China. The story I told you before is pretty consistent. Like you have to fly to Hong Kong get on a, a, a van or a train, you know, two hours later and all said and done is 20 hours door to door and however many thousands of dollars of costs. Having quick access to your product line is so much more valuable when you're first getting your product up and running than trying to reduce your unit costs, especially for people who have less experience manufacturing or don't have access to resources who can help oversee it because you're going to make mistakes. You're going to give, you know, incorrect or incomplete information and the manufacturer's going to have questions and there's going to be delays and lots of back and forth. And to work through the kinks, it's so much more efficient to do it locally when transportation and logistics aren't a factor. When you're a startup, you're not expected to be profitable. You're expected to find and deliver a product to customers that customers want. That's the initial yes. problem you're trying to solve. Yes, of course, you have to be conscious of costs, but I see too many early stage hardware companies focus too heavily on getting their unit costs down well before they even know if customers want the product. Oh, absolutely. You know, like yeah. you don't even know if your product's going to be successful. Like who cares if it's profitable or not, right? It doesn't matter yes. if you're able to get it to be built for free if nobody wants it. And so focus on getting your product built reliably and efficiently first, get it to market, prove the customers want it, get the feedback, you know, the whole agile concept of getting your product out as quickly as possible to get that feedback loop going. 
That's what your primary focus should be, not on driving your unit costs down. I don't want to diminish the value. Clearly, you don't want to be just, you know, blowing money, you know, out the door, but that really shouldn't be the top of your priority. And so I often tell customers or early stage companies, look for local resources for manufacturing for those reasons. Then decide once you have the line up and running and the documentation's in place, the processes are in place, the equipment, you know, all the, the QA processes are in place, then it's so much easier to move it offshore to reduce costs. And, and that will even help you decide what is the right factory you need to send it to. Because you'll understand your product so much better and where the inefficiencies are and where you need to find a contract manufacturer to help you. Your original question is, is are we going to see more onshoring? I, I think the answer is yes. And, and a couple of reasons, which is, gets me excited. Certainly, first off, you know, the pandemic is certainly forcing some people to bring their manufacturing resources more local because of yeah. just, you know travel restrictions. But... I mean, what's really exciting about the hardware industry these days is there is a lot of innovation happening in manufacturing capabilities, like rapid prototyping, 3D printing, part machining. There's a lot of really, really good innovation by a handful of companies that is improving the speed to prototype and build products and reducing the cost. And almost all of that innovation is happening here in the States. And so that, too, is, I think, a motivation for people to onshore certainly some volume of production. At the end of the day, you know, high volume probably will always go offshore. And again, it really depends on the ratio of labor to, to components, right? Compo- Here's the bottom line is the, the physical parts themselves have the same cost no matter where you're manufacturing. Because you're negotiating directly with the seller, you're negotiating a price. Yes, of course, there's maybe VAT or or shipping costs associated with it, but hopefully those are insignificant that they they really they could be amortized. So the parts themselves will have the same cost regardless of where in the world you're manufacturing, but it's the labor that makes up the difference in why people go offshore. Because traditionally offshore labor rates are lower. And so that's why people move offshore. But if your products, in theory, could be built completely automated by by robots or other types of automated machine, then maybe it's an even playing field. And, and another thing, you know, to take into account is people don't always look at what's the total landed costs of your product. There's so many peripheral associated costs with bringing a product yes. to production that sometimes people forget, and they only focus on the actual bill of materials costs. And the labor costs, but there's there's shipping, there's setup fees that have to be amortized, there's iterations, there's expertise, a more experienced team can get a lineup faster than a less experienced team. Probably yield rates and things like that. Exactly. Yield, you know, first pass yield and and other types of, of aspects that really ultimately dictate what it costs for you to build and deliver to your customer individual unit. And so... It really depends on the make of your products, how labor intensive it is or not, or how complicated it is or not. It's not just the bill materials. Yeah. Today's episode of the Lager Podcast is brought to you by us, Lager. The Lager Podcast people are talking about Lager. Go figure. If you made it this far into the episode, that means you're interested in hardware, which means you're probably interested in Lager. So go give it a look. Lagerdata.com. L-A-G-E-R-D-A-T-A.com. XOXO, we love you. Bye. 
I'm going to use this as a way to do a segue into something about that, that's going to bring us to Duro. My outsider view of hardware and the world of hardware is, is seen through the lens of somebody interested in startups, somebody interested in software, and somebody interested in products in general, but with a very close relationship to a lot of hardware engineers. And it felt like there was this really exciting moment, maybe it's five years ago, where hardware startups were getting funded like crazy and VCs were all about it. And then a whole lot of them failed, like a bunch, bunch, bunch of them failed. And the, I think that the the myth around that now, if you were going to like poll a bunch of VCs, they would say things like it's the same risk as a software startup, but for X, you know, three times the cost. And at first I bought that and thought that it was structural. But what I recently have come to believe is that it's more of a a cultural thing and a tools and process thing where hardware people just weren't as well trained in the startup way of doing things. And so they didn't have the processes. They didn't have the tools. There's things that are coming to play now with like continuous integration, version control, things like that, that just weren't there. If all of those tools were there, my question to you, and it's kind of connected to the stuff you're doing with bomb management and all that is like, do you think that a hardware startup three years from now, let's say, could act a lot more like a software startup and maybe some of those comparisons and that lore should like go away. Yeah, that that's very astute. So here's the crux of it. It's when that wave of hardware interest, you know, and, and, and many famous examples like Pebble, I think it's one of the more famous ones. The gist of it is it's hardware has, and I'm oversimplifying it, two main phases of development. There's the prototyping phase where you're trying to build an instance of your product to meet your functional and design needs. But then there's a manufacturing side of it. And they're two very different things. Like building one of something is very different than building a million of them, which is something that's unique compared to software, where software you build it once and every copy you make is literally bit by bit identical. Yeah, there's like a famous line that the first copy of Windows cost of Windows 95 cost $3 million and the second copy cost $3 as a CD back then. Yeah, that's it. But what you're guaranteed is that every single copy is exactly the same. That is not true with hardware. Hardware is, is susceptible to the laws of nature. There's natural variance in the world. And depending on your manufacturing process, on how narrow or wide that curve is. And depending on your limits of what's acceptable on how many units coming off the line will work or not. The barriers to entry for prototyping came down tremendously in the mid 2000s. And credit things like Arduino and Raspberry Pi and 3D printing and other types of open source hardware project and the whole maker movement, which made prototyping so much more approachable and easier and more cost efficient for people who were at, at one point initially intimidated or didn't know how to begin or didn't have the capital to begin. And so it's not that people didn't have good ideas before, it's people didn't know how to actually make them real with hardware. And so now the world made prototyping so much easier and so much more accessible and, and there was motivation and people were excited about it. And then Indiegogo and Kickstarter also kind of helped accelerate and create platforms for these companies, you know, to get the word out. And but what happened is all that momentum basically just went smack into a wall when they tried to manufacture. 
because manufacturing didn't have that renaissance and didn't get any easier. So many companies failed when they actually started to produce. There's so much cost and so much empirical experience you need to really know how to design your product for manufacturing versus prototyping. The barrier brought overconfident software people to come in and say, oh, this is going to be easy. Let me show them how it's done. Instead of like to like hardware experts, you know, who are solving those sort of harder problems. And then they were like, this is going to be easy. And then they're like, oh, no, wait, it's really hard. And then the takeaway is hardware's hard. Don't do it. And I was like, well, maybe the takeaway should just be ask some experts. Yeah. I mean, here's the analogy. I think it's it's like medieval times and you have some foot army who's trying to penetrate a castle and there's multiple walls to get through. So I feel like that wave in the mid late 2000s broke through that first wall, but they didn't have the expertise or the energy to break through the next wall. But now that next wall is starting to come down because a lot of people, the professionals, the experts are recognizing, hey, we need to improve our process, right? We need to make manufacturing easier. We need to make manufacturing more reliable. We need to make manufacturing more cost effective. And what's happening, and, and this is kind of where Duro sits, we're taking a lot of the amazing advancements that came from the web world in the mid-2000s, specifically things like that whole agile concept of doing rapid iteration and small incremental changes and evaluate things before you just do a full-fledged production because hardware is expensive. And and then there's just the advancements of web APIs and technologies and just concepts like the cloud and, and centralization of data. That is now starting to penetrate the manufacturing side. And we are seeing amazing new companies that are focused on the manufacturing processes and helping to improve those. The interest has come back in hardware. And I think that now combination of software and hardware and seeing the collaboration, how those tools, those disciplines are no longer different departments. They're collaborating more. And it's more thought of as an ecosystem or or some people call it a full stack. That needed to happen to, to create the demand. But then on top of that, the hardware industry and the manufacturing industry just needed better technology to make it happen. Yeah. And, and I, I like the analogy a lot of the, the wall one and wall two and at Logger, we're trying to work on continuous integration at Duro. You're we're basically, we're making second wall hardware companies trying to get through that second wall. And I think that's like a really nice segue into Duro. And after all that stuff, you were freelancing and you're on your own doing your own thing. And at some point you decide to found your own company and you have a co-founder. So maybe just a little background about starting it. It's got the name Duro Labs. So that makes me wonder whether you knew the product you were going to make initially or you knew the space or. So just take us back to that moment. Yeah. Well, so Duro was this idea I've had for a long, long time. It came from my experiences, even going all the way back to Adura, where I was managing the design and manufacturing of our products. It's really hard. Yeah, <laughs> it's really hard. And a lot of it, it doesn't need to be. A lot of it was just the tools that we had access to to manage the data, meaning the bill of materials, CAD files, supply chain sucked and really antiquated products that came about from the 80s and 90s when spreadsheets was the dominant UI. 
and the cloud didn't exist, where hardware had separate siloed teams, and each team had its own copy of the bill materials. They each had their own software tools, CAD tools, ERP, data management, what have you, but none of them talked to each other. And I don't think anyone ever thought it was efficient. It was certainly better than like pen or paper, but there's a reason for it, right? At the time, the cloud didn't exist and a lot of these web APIs weren't as prevalent. But, you know, having a front row seat, being in the Bay Area during that boom of the software and the agile renaissance and seeing things like CICD and automated testing and GitHub and other revision management tools and centralization, and websites, talking to websites directly, being able to integrate and pull data. I was sitting there, you know, at my desk, manually entering in parts from DigiKey and McMaster's websites into a spreadsheet. I'm like, why am I doing this? It is so inefficient and so prone to risk. And every job I went to had the same problems. And it wasn't just unique to one company. And so for a long time, I was like, I want to build a better mousetrap for myself. I know I don't have to be entering this information manually anymore. No one else seems to be doing it. I'm going to take a stab at it. That's great. You know, I, I know our CEO, Ukber, was at a very cool startup called Ringley before this. And he would complain to me nightly about these bomb issues and like, wait, is it this email or is it that email? V11 point. It's like, you just can't know that the message sent and the message received are like aligned. And we would talk about like, you brought, if you brought an engineer from 30 years ago and you brought him into the future and you're like, Hey, let me show you the new processors you get to use. Let me show you all this cool hardware you get. They'd be like, Oh, unbelievable. And they're like, okay. And then here's the software tools they're using. They'd be like, Oh yeah, I know those. I've got, I've got you covered. Like there's nothing new happening there at all. No, I mean, the, the analogy I use is, and this is literally how it's ha- what's happening is imagine a software team having a local team and an offshore team. And every night the local team zips up their source code, <laughs> just JavaScript files, right? You know, yeah. On your stack, literally zips up those files and emails them to the offshore team and say, here's my latest code. I get these funny looks when I talk to software engineers, like, why would you do that? But that is literally what happens in the hardware engineering space, right? I, I used to literally zip up my CAD or Gerber files and email them to my offshore team and say, here's my latest revision. You know, I need you to, to tweak this or do this or whatever. And occasionally those are like, oh, not this one. Wait, don't use that one. Use this oh, yeah, one. Yeah. With, with file yeah. names being like version <laughs> two dash three slash my initials, final, 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 right? Oh, yeah. And I do know while it's it's waning, it's still happening today with companies. And it's, it's, again, there was a reason for it at one point. The technology wasn't there. The culture wasn't there. But all those reasons are gone. And so the initial part of Duro was let's just get our tools back better, right? Let's just build a better mousetrap. Let's use the latest technology. Let's use the latest trends in data management, prove that centralizing your source code in the cloud works. And, you know, I'd argue that the bill materials and CAD files is essentially the source code for hardware, right? A lot of it was just timing that there's more market trends that are happening now that allows Duro to achieve even higher tiers and capabilities that it it could have of just modernizing the data management and things like digitization of the supply chain industry. I don't have to be thumbing through 
catalogs or websites to look for parts. I can use parametric generated search engines. I can link my bill of materials dynamically to those sources now so that I don't have to be waiting or doing manual updates to look to see if parts are in stock or the prices change. It's no longer these siloed products. It can now can be a, a complete centralized platform that teams can monitor from one location through the entire design to manufacturing process. That's cool. If you think about that second wall, for people who don't know Duro, what are the parts of the second wall that you're trying to break through? A lot of it is that. There's one thing that will never change in hardware. Hardware takes multiple teams to build a product. An engineer isn't going to be both a skilled electrical and mechanical. You're going to have those different disciplines. You're going to have operations. You're going to have a manufacturing team offshore. So already you're creating these disparate silos of data, right? That's never going to change. But what we can do is make the transparency and collaboration much easier. And so that's what fundamentally Duro is striving to do, is to stop the siloed conversations, the different data being transposed among these different teams manually from one to the other, centralizing that information, kind of like how GitHub does for source code, and making everyone guarantee that they're accessing the same version. Sort of a shared source of truth. And adopting what also was a huge contribution to the software boom is the agile process itself. So I would argue that once software engineers adopted in mass, the agile concept, it opened up so much more potential for innovation, right? Because now teams could take small incremental risks with, with very low cost, and they can try things, and they can innovate on it, and they can learn from it in much more rapid succession. Whereas hardware, we weren't doing that. It was a more waterfall approach or inherent to the fact that it takes longer to manufacture products. People just couldn't take those risks. And so that too is what Duro is trying to bring is not just the centralization of the data so to guarantee that everyone's referencing the same information, but trying to bring in these concepts of agile. And we call it the agilization of hardware. It's allowing companies to take small incremental um, revisions and learn from them and the principles of managing the data in these small, incre small increments. And, and that itself is what we feel is going to open up this new explosion in the hardware space of innovation. And so it's a big pie, right? There's a lot of things the hardware manufacturing industry needs to innovate on and, and improve upon. And we're just taking one piece of it. We're just focused on the data management itself. But we still need to rely on other entities like the manufacturers to be able to move faster or to digitize their services, right? I've been on many factory floors where usually by policy, they refuse to allow an internet connection. And so I would get the yield reports or the test failures maybe once a week by email. And then I'd come through them and understand and try and look for trends and try and find ways to improve it. And so that itself, that concept, we can't implement this agilization of hardware if it breaks in one of these elements. 
And so we need manufacturers to also take on their own responsibility and digitizing their capabilities and making that data accessible. And that's where you can iterate more quickly and see what's going on and try new things. And so it is going to take a village, really, to kind of improve the ecosystem. And there's there's some amazing efforts in this space that is happening. Yeah, I've heard you use the language like giving the power back to the engineers, which I like a lot. Software engineers are very empowered. And even now there's no code. So like anybody is becoming empowered. And so having hardware engineers be on the same plane, I love that goal. You're basically making software for hardware people, which very few people can do that. Do you think it's sort of like this kind of thing was inevitable because of that variety in your background? I'd like to say it was very opportunistic. And I think maybe that's what attracted me to being an electrical engineer in the beginning, focusing on embedded systems. I was both designing circuits and writing the firmware to control it. And so it allowed me an opportunity to see the merger of hardware and software and how they can operate together and the benefits of them and how one can complement the other. And I think just, I just have a, I feel like I have a, a, just a good eye for, you know, good product design, whether it's, it's physical products or, or software products. I did study also, you know, studio art and photography for quite a while. That was an outlet for me. And so I feel that that has also helped Duro achieve a lot of success is we have a great team of designers and developers. That has always been a major focus. Duro will never succeed if we're just lipstick on a pig, if we just look like a better product but aren't actually moving the industry forward. And so we rely heavily on that concept of making the software interface simple, autonomous, and easy to use so that Duro can become a powerful product, but in the background. So kind of how Git is a very, very powerful product, but it's not how a software engineer spends the percentage of their day. They spend the percentage of their day developing software. Today, hardware engineers spend a measurable amount of their time managing the data. And we feel that's because of poor product design. And so that is part of Duro's vision is to be a powerful product, but be in the background. And we can only achieve that through good design. The analogy to Git is a really good one. And I think the interesting thing is, despite it being in the background, it is a very well-loved technology and it's not invisible. It still has a lot of love for it. And the thing about, you know, the reason why I think I'm, I'm a big believer in Duro and, and expect like pretty huge success is because the the stakes are are so high in hardware. A mistake in software is just whoop, revert, who cares, you know, whatever. And the stakes in, in hardware are massive. And yet it has seemed to me over the years that the cultural self-defense mechanisms are not being built up correctly. And the use of something like Duro basically saves you just catastrophic. Like you could, your whole business could get screwed based on something like this. And it's like, so there's a no brainer to take on using a tool like that, especially like a well-designed one that's going to actually minimize those risks. That's actually, it's, it's a really good point. And I, I want to highlight is, you know, I, I, I say this, that the very first line of code a software engineer writes is get init meaning they lead with setting up their revision control tools, and then they start writing code. Hardware engineers, that's not the same. Like hardware engineers 
love to just dive into CAD, start designing something. And then when either they recognize that I'm at a, a critical point, I need to save a snapshot here, or it's just an opportune time to pick their head up and take a breath and then start wrapping what they've done in revision control. That's a problem. Hardware engineers lag with revision control where software engineers lead. Why is that? And that is something that we've studied quite heavily at Duro. And we feel it's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem. The culture hasn't really adopted revision control as a very, very critical piece. It's, or, it's more of an afterthought. Is it just a cultural thing and it's just we need to educate people on the value of revision control? Or is it because it's really difficult? And I think it's the latter. I think because revision control tools are really complicated for CAD products. You know, they're often an afterthought or they're an add-on and they're often expensive financially as well as they're just complicated to maintain. And that is why Git is one of the contributions to success. It's so easy. You don't have to install anything. You can literally go to a command line on a brand new laptop, MacBook, and type getting it and it works, right? Yeah. You can't do that in the hardware industry yet. And so that's kind of the chicken and egg dilemma. It's hardware engineers don't use tools like Git as ubiquitously or, or as early because they don't exist or they're too complicated. And so they're thought of as a, a pain. And it, again, it, it takes too much of their day. Engineers didn't become engineers to become data management people. They became engineers because they love to design. And so when you make them, when a, a, a lion's share of their day is spent managing their data, they get frustrated and they don't want to do it and they procrastinate. That's why I don't think revision management has permeated through our industry as much as it has the software industry. And so that is, Duro's goal is to become as simple as Git, where a hardware engineer is starting a new project, go to the command line and type Duro init, and then they start their CAD. Right. And that has to happen. And that's going to take time. It's not just a cultural oh, yeah. thing, but it's also a technology thing. And, and there's there's nuances. I don't want to oversimplify the problem. You know, the nuances being that, you know, software is text, text files. Yes. ASCII files. And it's so much easier. There's no proprietary aspect of it. It's so much easier to open and build tools to to do diffs and mergers and what have you. Whereas a lot of hardware files are CAD files, which are binary and often proprietary formats. And so just the technical capabilities to open them up and to merge or branch or to show what's changed, that is a limitation. And so that does slow down the development of these types of tools, but hopefully one day, you know, it will be here. Well, Michael, thank you very, very, very much. I super enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for being on the Logger podcast. I hope to talk to you again soon. I hope you had a good time. I don't know. What do you say to end a podcast? <laughs> yeah. Well, th thank you, Cameron. I, I really enjoyed this. Mm -hmm.